On February 2nd, 1986, Anita Kabi was walking home from the train station when a car pulled up alongside her. Two men grabbed her, forcing her into the car in full view of multiple witnesses. When details of what happened next were leaked to the public, many hoped to see the reinstatement of the death penalty in New South Wales. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to the show. It is the first episode of the new year. A quick reminder that all of the old Insight episodes are on their own feed now. It is taking a little longer than expected to get the show in all the podcast apps that are out there, but it should be everywhere soon enough. It feels nice and orderly to have Insight in one feed and Crime Lines in another. But the overlap still exists because tonight's case was recommended by Sophie back when I was still doing Insight. I have a Crime Line suggestion list and the old Insight suggestion list. I sort of bounce between them. So if you sent in a case for Insight, you don't have to resubmit for me to hopefully get to it. Between the two lists, I have about 200 cases, so hopefully I'll still be podcasting long enough to get to them all. Most of my podcast audience is in the U.S., so it's always interesting to see the responses to international cases that I pick. I often pick ones that are big, huge cases in their country, but not outside of that nation. That's absolutely the case tonight with the murder of Anita Cobby. I never heard of this case until Sophie suggested it. But when I mentioned it to Australian listeners, they told me they know this case in depth already. It's probably a good thing Haley researched this one for me because depth and details are her specialty. A quick content note, this episode does discuss sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Anita Lorraine Lynch Cobby was born in November 1959 in Sydney, Australia. And no matter what article you read about her, you will read how beautiful she was. It makes me think of the Tara Grinstead case out of Georgia because her beauty pageant past not only comes up, it's regularly in the headline. Anita was beautiful. She had a perfect smile and a love for fashion, so she did catch people's eye. But the same year she won the Miss Western Suburbs pageant, she entered nursing school, and she was a nurse much longer than she was a pageant contestant. Nursing school was not some lifelong dream of Anita's. Her sister said she was a little surprised because Anita tended to be a little bit squeamish. But this was such a great fit for her personality. Anita wanted a career that helped people and made a difference. She was a great listener. Her family talked about how she would always lean in when you were talking to her, so you knew she was really paying attention. She was compassionate. She was always wanting to hear what other people were dealing with. And once she got into nursing school in 1979, It was obvious she made the right choice. Anita loved nursing, and her skills 
really complemented the role. A coworker said that Anita could connect with patients on a personal level. She would go into the room to check on them and come out knowing their grandkids' names. She was so loved by those she took care of. While in nursing school at Sydney Hospital, 20-year-old Anita met 23-year-old nursing student John Cobby while in the hospital hallway. John said Anita was so pretty that he had noticed her, but was too intimidated to approach her. He couldn't believe it when she stopped to talk to him one day, and he decided to take a shot. He asked her out for a drink. Anita said yes, and they went out for dinner and drinks one night, and then the next night they went out again, and before long, they were inseparable. They were head over heels, and six months later, they moved in together. In 1981, he proposed, and of course, Anita said yes. They married in March 1982, though between the proposal and the wedding, Anita got pregnant. They had not planned to grow their family just yet, but they were thrilled. They announced the news to their families, who were equally as excited, but unfortunately, Anita miscarried a few weeks later. After the wedding, John and Anita skipped the expense of a honeymoon. They moved to a home in the Sydney area where they lived until 1984. John was given an opportunity that he had really wanted. A cousin in Coffs Harbor was a horse trainer and invited John to come up there and work with him. Coffs Harbor is on the coast, roughly halfway between Sydney and Brisbane, but a little bit closer to Brisbane. Anita and John both continued their nursing careers with John working nights while being a horse trainer during the day. After one of his horses won a race, he ended up with a chunk of money. Since Anita had uprooted her whole life to support his dream, John wanted to spend the money on Anita's dream, which was to travel. They took a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to put their lives on hold and go around the world, go to LA, go to New York City, go to Rome. Anita loved Rome in particular. When their money ran out in mid-1985, the couple went back to Sydney and found themselves wanting different things. Anita's sister Catherine said Anita seemed restless. She still wanted to travel. She wanted to go to concerts. She wanted to live a more free-spirited life, but John wanted to have a baby. In late 1985, the couple separated. The separation was not part of John's plan in life. This was Anita's idea, and he was rolling with it. The plan was not to separate pending divorce, but rather get some space, clear their heads, and see what they really wanted. See what was coming next for them. Maybe figure out if there was a way they could take their next steps together or see if it was time to move on. So they each moved back into their parents' homes. After about six weeks, the separation, if you could even really call it that, was more or less over. During their time apart, they spoke every day and they saw each other regularly. It didn't take much for them to realize they did not want to be apart. They went on a trip to the Central Coast in January 1986, and John described it 
as the honeymoon they never had. They made plans to go house hunting soon and move back in together. Shortly after the trip, on February 2nd, 1986, 26-year-old Danita wrapped up her shift at Sydney Hospital around 3.30 p.m. Before she left that morning, she told her mom not to expect her home until late because she was going out to dinner with friends after work. After the dinner, her friend gave her a ride to the train station where she dropped Anita off. Anita took the train to the stop closest to her house, arriving around 9.45, She lived a 30-minute walk from the station, so this was on the longer side for a walk home, especially since Anita had been out since 7 in the morning. On most nights like this, Anita would call her dad, who would drive to the station and pick her up. But the payphones at the station were not working, they had been vandalized, and there were no cabs around that late that she could hop into. These factors are likely why Anita decided to make the trek home on foot. This wouldn't have been a walk she was nervous to make. It was largely through a well-lit, populated area that she was really familiar with. This was her home, and it was a beautiful night out. So Anita left the train station on foot. Not long into her walk home, a four-door car pulled up alongside her. Two men got out of the back seat, grabbed Anita, and shoved her into the car. Anita screamed, which alerted those who lived nearby that something was happening. This was, like I said, a populated area. One witness was a 14-year-old named Linda. She ran outside when she heard the screams and saw a woman being dragged into the back seat of a dirty white car. She said the woman was trying to get away, but a man had her by her arms and her shoulders. Linda yelled for her brother, John, but by the time he ran outside, Anita was already in the car. He tried to chase the car down, but he was on foot, so they got away. He identified the car as an H.T. Holden that was white with a gray undercarriage. Another teenager, 16-year-old Stephen, was watching TV with his mom when they also heard the screaming. He went outside and gave chase with John. He saw a neighbor named Dale sitting in his car talking to his girlfriend, so Stephen jumped in and told him to follow the white Holden, that they had just grabbed a woman. But the Holden had too much of a lead, and they couldn't catch up to it before they lost the car. They drove around for another 15 minutes, hoping they'd see it, but they couldn't find it. They went home to call the police, but of course, by then, other people already had called. Then when John and Linda's older brother Paul came home, they gave him a description of the car and told him what happened. So he went out in his car to see if he could find anything. He knew of a lover's lane area nearby and thought that would be a good place to check. It was rather remote, and it was somewhere he could imagine people wanting to do bad things would go. He passed a few cars that were not the Holden on either side of the road, and he went to the end of the road to turn around, and it was there that he saw an H.T. Holden car pulled over with no one in it. 
It wasn't the exact model of the car he thought he was looking for, but he shined a spotlight into the adjacent field and saw nothing. So he got back in his car and left, and in a pretty cruel twist, this was the car he was looking for. Remember, Paul hadn't seen the car. He was going off what John and Linda had told him. So he had the model wrong. The men were in the field, but when they heard his car coming, they laid low in the long grass until he left. It's hard to really judge from the reporting on this. The details of it get a lot of coverage, but the police response to it doesn't get very much. From what I've seen and heard, it doesn't seem like the police took this as seriously as you might think they would have, especially considering how many witnesses saw this event. Anita was fighting back, so it's not like the men grabbed her quickly, tossed her in the car, and took off. Everyone had a good 20 seconds to respond to this. That's why two independent people had time to get outside, witness what was happening, and run towards the car before it could even get very far. And let's just say how remarkable these people are because they all did this so young and without a single regard for their own safety. It's really honestly amazing at how brave they were in this moment. The police did take a report of the incident and did a patrol looking for the car, but I'm not sure how much else they did to try to find out what was going on here. Anita didn't arrive home that night, and her father, Gary Lynch, was concerned, but he thought maybe she was just out later than expected, so he went to bed. The next morning, on February 3rd, her mother, Grace, noticed Anita hadn't slept in her bed. This alarmed Gary and Grace because Anita told them she'd be home, and it wasn't like her to not call if her plans changed. But she's a grown woman, so they weren't about to call in the Calvary because their 26-year-old daughter slept at a friend's house without telling them first. But then they got a call that Anita hadn't shown up to her afternoon shift at the hospital. And that is when they decided it was time to call in the Calvary. Anita hadn't just slept over at a friend's house. She was missing. Gary filed a missing persons report while Grace called around to Anita's friends. Her husband, John Cobby, meanwhile, had no idea anything was amiss. He was out with his dad, and he got a call at the restaurant from a family member saying that he needed to get in touch with Anita's parents immediately. When he called the house, they asked if he knew where Anita was or had he heard from her since the night before. He said he hadn't talked to her since the day before in the morning. He asked her if she wanted to spend time together later that day, but she told him about her plans to have dinner with friends. So as far as he knew, that's what she had done. Concerned, John went to Anita's parents' house after the call, but he could tell they were stressed and tensions were running high. So John decided to just go home and wait there. On February 4th, 1986, the next day, a farmer named John Reen noticed his cows were acting strangely in the field. He made a mental note to check it out later because he was actually on his way to the auction. When he got home later in the day, 
he noticed the cows were doing the same thing. They were huddled in this one area all around something. He got on his motorbike and drove out into the field to see what was going on. That's when he found Anita's body face down and completely naked. Due to the injuries he could see on her, he knew she had been attacked and possibly tortured. He immediately rode back to his house to call the police. Because of Anita's missing persons report, someone brought a picture of her to the field in the hopes it would help identify the body, and to the investigators, it looked like a possible match. John Reen, the farmer, told the police that late on the night of February 2nd, he had heard yelling that was enough to wake him up, but his assumption was it was just teenagers. His field backed up to that lover's lane that I mentioned before, and it wasn't uncommon for teens to go out there to party away from prying eyes. He just dismissed the noise as that and went back to sleep. In the field, Anita's clothing and purse were gone. The only thing on her was her wedding ring. It was a less common design in 1980s Australia because it was a Russian wedding ring, which is also called a triple rolling ring. I know you guys have seen these. They are three interlocking rings, and each one has a different gold finish. One is yellow, one is white, and then one is rose gold. Investigators took the ring to the family for identification, but they weren't 100% sure it was Anita's ring. Her sister thought the ring looked rusty, and Anita's ring would never be in that condition. But what she interpreted as rust was actually dried blood. While the detectives were still at the house, John Cobby showed up. He had heard a news announcement on the radio that a body had been found, so he pulled over and called the house to see if it was connected to Anita's disappearance. And whoever answered the phone told him he needed to come over right away. So, of course, at this point, he's assuming this is Anita. So he races over there, and when he gets there, he is shown the ring. He said it was her ring. They then asked John to go identify the body formally, but he said he couldn't do it. Grace then offered to go since, like her daughter, she was a nurse. She felt she could detach enough. But the police knew what Anita's face looked like after the brutal attack, and they didn't want her mother to see that. So Gary went instead. He tried to remain strong, but his knees buckled at one point, and he had to be supported while he regained his composure. The investigation was headed by Detective Sergeant Ian Kennedy, and as soon as he brought Gary back to the house after the identification, he wanted to talk to his current suspect, the estranged and almost reconciled husband. Kennedy and John remember the interrogation at the police station a little differently. Kennedy said he asked John if he was involved, but John said Kennedy accused him, saying they already knew he was guilty. 
John also remembers being pushed up against a wall, being on the floor at some point, and Kennedy does not remember the interrogation being forceful, like John has said. At some point in the interrogation, John just gives out a very weak confession, saying, I guess I did it, I must have done it. Really the hallmarks of a false confession. John did not have a great alibi. At the time of Anita's murder, he was at home. His parents may have been able to vouch for him, but parents would lie for their kids. I'm not saying his would, but plenty would. And it was the overnight hours, so they may not have seen him at all during that window if they were asleep. But John was released that day, which is somewhat remarkable since he did say he confessed. Obviously, this is a good thing since he wasn't the killer, and investigators may have already been leaning towards other leads. The assault on Anita did not look like what they had seen in other domestic violence situations. And they were thinking more than one person was likely involved anyway due to the autopsy findings. Anita had so many injuries that it seemed unlikely one person inflicted them all. Her cause of death was blood loss from having her throat cut. But she suffered prior to death. She had bruises pretty much everywhere. She had severe cuts to her hands, believed to be from fighting off the knife. She had scratches all over her body that didn't make a lot of sense until police realized she would have had to go through a barbed wire fence to get into the field. Her killer or killers likely hopped over it or lifted a strand and went between, but Anita was just dragged through. Those injuries, plus her clothes being missing from the field, led investigators to conclude that she was already nude when she went through the fence. Anita had been viciously sexually assaulted, and the evidence indicated she was raped multiple times, which also supported the idea of multiple attackers. There was so little evidence left behind at the crime scene that police spent hours and hours combing every inch of that paddock in the hopes they would find something. They followed every lead on anyone who may have had an issue with Anita, but that list was super short. She was fairly universally loved. With so little evidence, lead investigator Kennedy went on a radio show on February 6th to discuss the case, announce a $50,000 reward, and ask the public for help. The radio show was with host John Laws, and someone slipped Laws a copy of Anita's autopsy report. Laws, to this day, refuses to say who gave it to him. An internal investigation within the police force never uncovered the mole. We don't know how Laws got this. And he made the very controversial decision to read the report out loud on the air. Okay, so Kennedy is hoping the reward and hearing some details of what happened to Anita would upset someone enough that they would call in a tip. Maybe not the killer or killers, but someone who suspected them or knew something, they would be motivated to call in. 
well, reading this autopsy report on air, did that to a degree even Kennedy wasn't ready for. It would later be revealed that not everything read on air was accurate. Some of the injuries laws read out loud, like mutilation, had not happened. Someone somewhere along the way, whether it's the person who gave laws, the autopsy, or someone else, may have colored it in a bit. The truthful parts were outrageous and horrific enough. They didn't necessarily need to add these in. The radio station was flooded with calls after this, and people were upset at him for reading the autopsy on the air. They felt it was disrespectful to the family and to Anita's memory. And honestly, that's a debate we are still having in true crime spaces about how much detail is appropriate in documentaries and on podcasts, and where is the line for victim privacy and dignity. But not all of the calls were angry at laws. Lots of them were people expressing anger at the killer or killers. Tens of thousands of people signed petitions for the death penalty to be reinstated in the aftermath of Anita's murder and learning what happened to her. And it would take a very long time for this to die down. This crime hit the public in a way they weren't going to forget anytime soon. The investigation, though, believe it or not, had not formally connected Anita to the kidnapped woman reports from a mile and a half from her house that same night. An officer had pulled all the calls made that night and flagged the incident as possibly related, but the timeline seemed impossible. They thought Anita's friend dropped her off at the train station too late to catch the train that would get her back on that street in her neighborhood at 9.50. They thought she wouldn't have gotten off that train until after 10 p.m., so they weren't even sure she had made it that far. But they decided to do a reconstruction of what Anita's path home would have been. They had a police officer who was similar in build to Anita, dressed in the same clothes that her friends saw her in at dinner, and their hope was to jog memories. But what it did was it showed that Anita absolutely could have made the earlier train, and the timing was near perfect for her to be the kidnapped woman. So now these cases are now being seen as one, and what this means is there's finally some actual evidence. They now have multiple witnesses who gave police the make and model of the car, the color of the car, and confirmed that there were multiple men involved. There were at least four men because two got out from the back seat and left two still in the front seat. But there may have been a fifth person also in the back seat. Running the car's description showed that a similar if not the same car, was stolen that night. So police finally have some leads. And the day after the reenactment, Anita's funeral was held. Gary and Grace kept it together at the service, which was being watched closely by the media. John Cobby's family had to pretty much hold him upright. 
And then during the ceremony, he started yelling, please don't take her away from me, before collapsing and being carried out. Grief is complicated, and even more so when someone dies so tragically and there seem to be no answers as to who or why. But the no answers part, that started changing quickly. Because the day after the funeral, police got the tip they needed. Through this tip, they discovered two names of the men who stole the car. The tipster didn't seem to know anything about Anita's murder, but they said that it was John Travers and Michael Murdoch who were driving a stolen H.T. Holden on February 2nd. Through another tip, they got a third name, Leslie Les Murphy. Interestingly, John Travers' name had actually been brought up by another tipster earlier in the investigation as someone they needed to look into. But this tip was not as specific in regards to the stolen vehicle, so it didn't really stand out among the sea of tips they had gotten already. It took a few days for police to locate Travers, Murdoch, and Murphy. They didn't have homes so much as places they couch surfed, and the police had to stake out their known hangouts, various family and friends' homes, before they could figure out where they were. On February 21st, they had a really good idea on where they could find all three men, and they raided those homes. They were going to charge the men for the stolen car and use it as a chance to ask them about Anita. Les Murphy, 22 years old, was found at the Travers family home because he was dating John Travers' sister. 19-year-old Michael Murdoch and 18-year-old John Travers were found at Travers' uncle's home. They were asleep when police raided. They were found in the same bed, so they were apprehended very quickly. In custody, Murdoch and Murphy both confessed to being involved in the theft of the car, but they denied having anything to do with Anita's murder full stop. But Travers, when questioned, overplayed his denial hand by a mile. He admitted to the car theft, but when he was confronted about a bloodied knife found at his uncle's house, he spat out, I didn't slit that slut's throat. Now, the cause of Anita's death was well known, thanks to the autopsy report being read on the radio. So this isn't some admission of knowing something he shouldn't know unless he was the killer. But there are two things this statement tells us. One, he was not asked about Anita when he said this. They hadn't brought up her name. He was being asked about the knife. He was clearly on edge and expecting them to ask him about the murder. And would an innocent person assume he was being linked to a random murder? Probably not. But this could be explained away. Maybe Travers was aware they were going to ask him about Anita. Maybe he had overheard it at the police station that he was being looked at for that crime. But then we still have the that slut comment, and that's an incredibly personal and demeaning way to refer to a woman that Travers had never met or seen before, or had any connection to. As much as I love shows about criminal profiling and how they solve crimes, I do think it's important to remember 
that profiling's a tool that can steer the ship, but it's not evidence for a conviction. So this language is very telling, and it told the police that this was a track they needed to stay on, but it wasn't exactly enough to charge him with a murder. The knife they found turned out not to be the murder weapon, but Travers was still held without bail because he was a wanted man for a rape allegation against him made in Western Australia. So they were able to hold him without bail as a fugitive. Murdoch and Murphy, though, were bailed out, which is exactly what the police wanted. They hoped following them would possibly lead to more evidence. The murder weapon was missing, the car they stole hadn't been found yet, and who knows what other types of evidence they may work to get rid of now that they knew they were being suspected of the murder. The day after the arrest, when Travers realized he wasn't going anywhere like his friends, he asked if his uncle's girlfriend could bring him some personal items. The woman is only known as Miss X, and she was living at the house Travers was staying at when he was arrested. Investigators made contact with her. They were surprised to find out she wanted to talk to them about what she suspected. Miss X told investigators that she thought Travers was involved in Anita's murder because it just fit. Travers had confessed to her about prior assaults, prior rapes of men and women, and she knew he always carried a knife. He hadn't mentioned Anita's murder to her. He didn't confess to that, but it seemed to fit what she knew of him. They asked her why she was willing to implicate one of her relatives like that, and she said no one should go through what Anita did. So police decided that they would let her bring Travers the items he asked for, and they would let her have a visit with him. She talked to him through the opening where they would slide his food trays, and they told her, just make it a conversation. They didn't want to tip him off that they were trying to get information. Just have a conversation and see what would happen. Because he confessed other crimes to Miss X in the past, so maybe he would be moved to do so this time. Miss X went down the hallway, had the visit, and when she came out, she was very upset. She was shaking. She told the police that Travers confessed to her. Not only did he say he did it, he told her to go get a knife from the house, a knife he called his best knife, and he admitted to her it was the murder weapon. He also asked her to destroy a pair of jeans with blood on them and to tell Les Murphy to get rid of the stolen car. Not only that, he gave two more names of men he said were with him that night, Michael and Gary Murphy, Les Murphy's older brothers. Let's take the time now to discuss these five charming individuals. Michael, Gary, and Les Murphy were all brothers from a large family. Michael went by Mick, and that's what I'm going to call him here as to not confuse him with Michael Murdoch. He was 33 and the oldest of nine children. He had a criminal past a mile long. 
At the time of Anita's murder, he was on the run. He had escaped from jail after an armed robbery conviction. Gary Murphy was 28. He had a violent temper, and he also enjoyed stealing cars. He was chronically unemployed, in part due to dropping out of school and part because of his criminal record. Les was the youngest of the children at 22. He was the only one of the three employed, and he had a long juvenile record. He had a temper similar to that of his brothers. When the boys were teenagers, their parents tried to intervene and get them involved in an outreach center that would put them back on the right track. Clearly, it wasn't enough. Michael Murdoch was 19 years old. He knew Les Murphy through his friend John Travers, but he didn't know the older two brothers at all. He grew up in abject poverty and in a violent home. As a minor, Murdoch spent time in a juvenile detention facility where he was sexually assaulted. While he was still a minor, he actually wrote to politicians about the attacks that happened in the juvenile detention facilities in the hope something would be done about it. John Travers was a childhood friend of his, and they committed crimes together prior to Anita Cobby's murder. And though John Travers was the youngest of the five men at 18 years old, he was the leader of the bunch. It was a role he took on in his home as well. His father left the family when he was 14, and he had six younger siblings his mother struggled to support. He would steal and do whatever he needed to to get money that he needed to help support his family. But before it sounds like I'm turning him into someone from Les Mis, he was also an incredibly violent person. His mother could not control him at all. She tried to send him to Boys Town for rehabilitation, but it didn't do any good. He was in and out of jail starting at the age of 12. By 14, he was addicted to drugs and alcohol. And by 18, he was a serial rapist. He sexually assaulted women, men, and even animals. Basically anyone he could overpower. 18 years old and already a serial sexual offender. His attorney said he had a terrible childhood. His father abused him physically and sexually, though his mother does not support this version of his upbringing. She does say his father was strict. But, I mean, come on. This level of dysfunction in an 18-year-old is telling me that there was something going on in his childhood more than an overstrict father. Between all five of the men, they had over 50 convictions. Most were for drugs or theft-related crimes like armed robbery, larceny, car theft, receiving stolen goods, things like that. But there were also convictions for assault and rape in there as well. So when John Travers' family member, Miss X, heard his confession, she was upset, but she already suspected it. She gave a written statement about what he said, and it was enough for police to get permission to record Travers rather than rely on this he said, she said situation. 
So the next time Miss X went in to talk to Travers, she was wired up. In this recording, you can hear Travers ask her if she found the jeans and the knife, which confirmed Miss X's written statement that he told her to look for those. She said she found the jeans but couldn't find the knife. He confessed to her again, and she asked him some specific questions. Through this, police learned more about what happened that night. According to Travers, all of them took turns raping Anita. When Miss X asked why they killed her, he said because they were drunk and she had seen their faces. He said the others told him to, quote, do his bit, so he cut her throat. Miss X asked what this meant. I mean, do your bit? That sounds like he had killed someone before, that this was something they expected him to do. And he said, no, he hadn't killed anyone before. She said truthfully, and he laughed and said no. Miss X told him to stop laughing because it wasn't funny. Travers said after they killed Anita, the men got back in the car and went to Travers' home where they burned all of Anita's clothing and their own while drinking beer. A neighbor later confirmed seeing this, and for some reason, Travers did not burn those bloody jeans. Travers also told Miss X about an escape plan he was hatching. DNA was on the rise in 1986, and police took his blood to possibly compare to evidence from other sexual assaults he was suspected in in Western Australia, and he was worried these would come back as matches. He knew that even if they couldn't convict him for Anita's murder, he was going down for a long time. So Travers' first plan was absolutely ridiculous. He wanted someone to derail the train that ran near the jail so it would crash into the building and he could escape. He must have realized that a train barreling at the building he was in could kill him just as easily as help him. So he came up with a more reasonable plan. He wanted Gary and McMurphy to help break him out in the overnight hours when there weren't going to be a ton of guards on duty. Miss X said she would get that message and the plan to the Murphy brothers. So now, police have a pretense to send Miss X out to find Mick and Gary Murphy to give them these breakout instructions. Like the others, these two did not have fixed addresses, so police hadn't located them yet. They asked Miss X to go to Michael Murdoch under the premise of needing to know where Mick and Gary were so they could break Travers out of prison. They wired her up again, and she went to Murdoch, who was staying at his mother's house. Miss X basically told him she knew everything, Travers had confessed, but this wasn't as successful as the recording from Travers was. Murdoch hesitated and said very little that was of any use. Though they got nothing from Murdoch, Travers' admissions were enough. Police rearrested Murdoch and Les Murphy, this time charging them with the murder. The same night, they conducted a search at Travers' family home where they found his bloody jeans that he was so worried about. 
and they found several knives. Though Tess could never definitively connect them to Anita's murder. Les Murphy and Michael Murdoch were questioned when they were taken into custody, and both said they were there when Anita was killed, but they did not see Travers do it. That no matter what else they did, Travers was the sole person responsible for her death. Les also distanced himself a little bit more, saying he did attempt to rape Anita, but wasn't able to get an erection, so he hadn't. So investigators take these admissions and they take them to Travers and confront him with these statements. With the writing on the wall, he was willing to come clean on more or less the events of that night. Travers told police that he and Murdoch were the ones who were seen grabbing Anita and forcing her into the car. When they got Anita into the car, they undressed her almost right away and began assaulting her still in the car. They were low on gas, so they pulled into a gas station holding Anita down in the backseat of the car at knife point to keep her quiet. After they got gas, they took her to the field where she was raped by all five men. Then Travers admitted he was the one who slit her throat, but he made it crystal clear that the other four men knew he was going to do it and encouraged him to do so. So now the police have admissions from three of the men involved, but they still did not have Mick or Gary Murphy in custody. The first three men didn't know they were suspects until the police arrested them, but Mick and Gary knew and they were hiding out. Eventually, someone with a conscience called in their location, and they were both found in the same house around 10 p.m. on February 26th. When they raided the house, Mick Murphy was holding a baby and sitting on a couch, so they told him to put the baby down and get on the ground. They then cuffed him. Because there were other people in the room, a woman and a baby, the arresting officer held Mick to the floor with his boot on his face, and later claimed he had to do it to subdue this violent criminal and protect the other people in the room. Of course, this left bruising and marks on Mick's face that he would claim cross the line into police brutality. Gary was standing when the police raided the house, so he took off and got pretty much to the yard's fence line before the police caught up to him and took him down. He resisted arrest and ended up with scratches and abrasions on his face, essentially from his face being rammed into the fence. He would also later claim police brutality. During the arrest, Gary wet his pants, and the police were very quick to report this in the media. They were really hoping to show Gary as a coward. When questioned, Mick Murphy gave a story that distanced himself from the worst parts of the crime. He admitted he was driving the car when they passed Anita, and Travers told him to loop back. When he looped back and pulled over alongside her, Travers and Murdoch grabbed her. Then Mick and Gary swapped seats at some point, so Gary drove them around after that. The rest of his story more or less matched with the gas station in the field. 
except Mick said Travers was solely responsible for the murder. He said that he, Murdoch, and his brothers started to leave Anita, unconscious and naked, but alive, when Travers called them back. Travers said he was going to cut her throat. Mick claimed he told Travers not to. He told him to just leave her there. According to Mick, everyone except Travers started walking toward the car again. When Travers caught up to the group, he told them he had killed her. One of them asked what it felt like, and he said it felt like nothing. Travers was the only one who gave an account that was truly self-incriminating. Everyone else downplayed their role and put the decision to kill Anita on Travers' shoulders only. So while all of this was going on with investigators and suspects, life for Anita's family had become chaotic. The public and the media were outraged about Anita's murder, and they swarmed the jail and the courthouse anytime they knew the men were being transported. They hung a noose from the roof of the jail, they jeered at them, they screamed at the men, and the police had to protect them because they were pretty sure they would have been torn to shreds by this mob. And everyone wanted to hear from the family. Anita's father, Gary, did his best to say yes to interviews. He and Grace didn't want Anita to be forgotten, and the police had told him early on that public tips would help close this case, so he put himself out there. But for John Cobby, the trauma was too much. I feel like I am so often on this show celebrating the families of victims when they dig deep and find their way to do something incredible in the face of their grief. But we can't ignore the other side. This is absolute, straight-up trauma. Losing a spouse, particularly the way Anita was attacked and killed, is trauma. John could not cope. No one is born with the skills to cope with something like this. And without anywhere he felt he could turn, John started drinking heavily and using drugs. His family was worried about him, and they realized he was being re-traumatized every time a news article came out or the media contacted him for a statement. And this was a huge case, which meant these news articles and these phone calls were pretty much daily. They were daily reminders of Anita's death, daily reminders of the trauma. So his family ended up sending John to the U.S. to live with friends to try to get away from it. A journalist tracked him down in Michigan, so he moved to California to stay with someone else. He spent some time in London, England as well, before eventually returning to Australia. But John still did not want to hear the details of what happened to Anita. He didn't want to hear her name every time he turned around, and he avoided the trial completely. Shortly before it began, John changed his last name from Cobby to Francis and shaved his head just to get out of this unwanted spotlight and hopefully find some sobriety and possibly even some healing. Before the trial even could start, though, there were a number of pretrial hearings, all of which John ignored. But during one of them, Miss X testified against Travers, with him sitting very close to her. She was terrified to testify, 
She was living in witness protection because of the death threats she was getting from the friends and family of the men. As far as I'm aware, she's still living under that assumed identity 30-plus years later. So as Miss X is testifying, Travers was glaring at her, and eventually he lunged for her. Obviously, the guards grabbed him. They were able to hold him back, but investigators worried this was it. Miss X was not going to be able to go through with testifying at the trial after this incident. But that is not what happened. If Travers hoped to intimidate Miss X, it backfired. Whether she just got pissed that he was trying to hurt her, or she saw that he was never actually going to be able to get to her. There were so many guards between them. I don't know which one it was, but a switch flipped. And she testified more confidently after this incident than she had before. The trial was set to begin on March 16, 1987. On day one, Travers decided to cut his losses and changed his plea to guilty. It's not clear why he decided to plead guilty and skip the trial, but he may have realized he was going to be found guilty anyway. They had his confession on tape. They had his statements to police. Maybe he thought this was his only chance at mercy in sentencing. Maybe the judge would take it into consideration that he was taking responsibility for what he did. To be clear, this was surely a manipulation rather than a true sign of remorse, but he did plead guilty. The other four were still going to trial. They had similar trial strategies. Michael Murdoch, Mick Murphy, and Les Murphy were all going to try for a lesser charge of manslaughter rather than murder, arguing Travers was the one who actually killed Anita, and they were walking away when it happened. They didn't encourage him to do it like Travers claimed. They also argued their statements slash confessions were coerced due to police brutality, and because they were given under duress, they were not truthful. Gary Murphy, though, he changed his story entirely. He was going for not guilty. He was now saying that he wasn't even there at all. He had split from the group earlier in the evening, so he wasn't there when the attack on Anita happened. Like the others, he claimed his confession was coerced. His attorney, Lee Johnson, believed him and wanted his trial to be severed from the other three, but that request was not granted. Lee Johnson's belief in her client's innocence and her vigorous defense of one of the most hated men in Australia led to a very vicious rumor that she and Gary were sleeping together. This rumor has followed her for years. The question is, how could she have slept with him? He was in prison the entire time, and there were armed guards nearby any time they were together. I think what this does, though, is demonstrate how charged this case was. Even the lawyers were getting hateful gossip spread about them just for doing their jobs. There was a major glitch in this trial from day one. The evening of the first day, 
which is after opening statements and after Gary Lynch testified, The Sun published a huge headline that read, Anita Murder Man Guilty, right on the front page, and there was a picture of John Travers. Of course, the article's about John Travers' guilty plea, but it also mentioned that Mick Murphy had escaped from prison and was on the run at the time he was arrested. This information was not to be presented in the case to the jury. So the next day, the defense asked for a mistrial. The jury may have seen the headline and the article, and it unfairly prejudiced them against the defense. The judge granted this request and discharged the jury, which surprised me when I first read it. It seemed like this case was in the news so much leading up to the trial that one article wouldn't have swayed the jury even if they saw it. But the more I thought about why the judge made this decision, the more sense it made. They had only done opening statements and a small amount of testimony so far. It's not like a mistrial in the middle of a trial after weeks and weeks and hours and hours of testimony. And of course, the judge is not wanting to give the defendants any grounds to appeal on. You want to make the trial as fair as possible from the start. So in this case, they weren't losing a whole lot to declare a mistrial, to pick a new jury and just redo day one. But did this really fix the problem? Because the media then reported that the jury was dismissed because of the article and that the article said Mick Murphy was a prison escapee. So they were still printing the thing they were told may have prejudiced the jury that ended in a mistrial. And it just seems like we're back at square one. Huge cases like this make it hard to find an impartial jury. And this was in the late 1980s before social media. Can you even imagine if Chris Watts had gone to trial and they had to find someone who never heard all the bad things about him by the time his trial rolled around, or anyone who still had an open mind about his guilt or innocence. This case was as big as that, even though it was mostly confined to TV and print media. So, of course, the defense was still concerned, and they asked the judge to delay the trial another six months in the hopes the media storm would die down. But that seemed fairly unreasonable to expect. It had already been a year since Anita's murder, and nothing had simmered down at all. There was no reason to believe that six months later, things would be any different. Instead, the judge focused on clear and often repeated instructions to the jury regarding what they may see or hear in the media. And the trial was set to be underway again on March 23rd. The trial lasted for 54 days of testimony. That is a long and exhausting trial, particularly since no one except for Gary Murphy was arguing the bulk of the facts in the case. Everyone agreed Anita was raped. Most of the defendants admitted that they had also participated in that attack. And even the Crown conceded that Travers was the one who held the knife and actually killed Anita. So what they were really arguing, except for, again, Gary, who was arguing innocence, the rest of them were arguing about their level of involvement. 
and whether it rose to murder or manslaughter. And this difference was huge for them. Three of them were in their 20s. One of them was in his 30s. Manslaughter meant they would have a life outside of prison one day. A murder conviction meant they would almost surely die in prison. At the trial, the prosecution referred to the attack on Anita as, quote, sustained degradation, brutal, unbridled lust, culminating in one of the most savage, brutal murders the state has ever known. The prosecution warned the jury that they were going to hear the absolute worst things they will likely ever hear about. There were investigators on this case who had never seen anything so brutal before or after. And here they're putting this on the jury, on ordinary citizens. The prosecution argued that the motive for the murder was to keep Anita from ever being able to identify all of the men as her rapists. And because the men knew Travers was likely to kill Anita, they were just as culpable as if they held the knife themselves. The defense's argument basically take what I just said, and it's the opposite. They didn't know Travers was going to kill Anita. He had the knife. He killed Anita. None of the men wanted him to or asked him to. At least one told him not to. The only evidence that they encouraged him to kill Anita came from Travers himself, who had a motive to claim they pressured him. It made him seem less culpable. The defense also challenged all of the confessions, saying they were obtained improperly and by force. The jury was given the case on June 9, 1986, and everyone assumed they would go in the jury room, vote guilty on murder across the board, and come back. Most people thought they would be waiting no more than an hour. But the jury kept deliberating into the evening, and then they were sequestered overnight. It wasn't until the next morning that the verdict went in, so Anita's family went home and sat there all night, just worried one or more of these men who had done horrific things to Anita might get off with manslaughter. Or worse, they'll buy Gary's story that he wasn't even there. When the verdict was read the next morning, it was all guilty. All four men were found guilty of murder, taking with intent to hold for advantage, assault and robbery, immediately after such robbery, using corporal violence, wounding the victim, inflicting actual bodily harm with intent to have sexual intercourse, and stealing the car. Six days later, all five men were sentenced. The judge basically said that he would show the men the mercy that they showed Anita which meant none at all. He gave them sentences of life in prison and determined that their files would be marked never to be released, effectively ending any hope they had of parole. They were also sentenced on the other charges, but those were going to run concurrently. John Travers, who pleaded guilty, did not appeal. The other four appealed on various grounds, Les Murphy brought up his illiteracy and how it impacted his statements to the police. Also, of course, how the media attention had prejudiced the jury pool. The appeals were dismissed. Then three of them appealed their appeal denials, and they lost there as well. 
John Travers' time in prison, from all reports, has been almost as violent as his life out of prison. He gets in fights regularly, he threatens guards, and he also complains he fears for his life. Sometimes he has to be kept in protective custody away from other inmates. In 1996, he did attempt to escape. He and another inmate were being taken to the hospital for an examination after they claimed they were sick. Obviously, they were faking it, and they tried to hacksaw their way out of the transport vehicle. They were unsuccessful. Michael Murdoch is still in prison and seems to get moved from medium to maximum security every several years and then back again. He actually appears to be the one with the least amount of infractions and drama behind bars. He converted to Christianity somewhere along the line. The oldest Murphy brother, Mick, died on February 21st, 2019 at the age of 66. It had been announced in the media a few months before this that he was terminally ill with cancer. Les Murphy is currently at what is basically a supermax level prison where he's not allowed contact with several other high-profile killers. Ivan Malat, the backpack killer, was there until his recent death. They were not allowed to be in contact. Another inmate who assassinated a politician, can't talk to him either. Gary Murphy has also been housed in maximum security his entire time in prison. And in June 2019, when he was 61 years old, he was jumped by eight inmates and severely injured. He spent about a month in the hospital recovering from these head wounds. From my understanding, he is still all these years later, maintaining his innocence. In the aftermath of Anita's death and the trial, her parents, Gary and Grace, decided they could do some good. They started the Homicide Victim Support Group alongside the parents of Ebony Simpson. Ebony was nine years old when she was kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered. Anita and Ebony's parents know exactly what is needed in the immediate aftermath of a homicide because they've been there, and they have worked to build a network that would provide for that. The group now has around 4,200 family members of murder victims in it. Gary also served on the Serious Offenders Review Board for four years from 1990 to 1994. He helped manage life sentence prisoners, and he'd review their progress. So if someone was coming up on a possible parole date, he could help them prepare for that eventual release. Gary and Grace remained active in criminal justice causes like these until their deaths. Gary died in 2008 at the age of 90 and Grace in 2013 at the age of 88. The type of counseling and support that the Homicide Victim Support Group provides really could have helped John Cobby. As John Francis, he remarried and had two children before later divorcing. One night, he was sitting in the living room with his son, and a commercial for some type of TV special came on, and it was about Anita's murder. John broke down sobbing, and his son, who was a teen at the time, asked him what was wrong. And that's when he sat his kids down and told them who he really was and about Anita. He had never told them. John carries a lot of guilt about Anita's death. Had he been there, had they never separated, had he done something differently, he could have prevented Anita from being on the road 
that night. Of course, the only people who deserve to feel any guilt over this are the men who killed her, but this is something that families often deal with. In 2015, there was a memorial service for Anita that John chose not to attend. John stayed home, but he opened social media and started reading comments from people about the memorial, and he just read this outpouring of support and love for Anita's family. He was so moved that he decided to post a picture of him and Anita, which effectively broke his silence for the first time in nearly 30 years. John decided with this moment that it was time to face what happened, face his feelings on it, and start remembering Anita. He, along with his son, went and changed their family surname back to Cobby. With author Mark Morey, he told a story in the book Remembering Anita Cobby. The same year, he gave his first televised interview about Anita in the documentary You Thought You Knew It All. I am going to recommend this documentary all day, every day. I have rarely watched a true crime documentary where I walked away and felt like it was about the victim. They spent time on Anita and who she was. They covered the crime and the aftermath, of course. They cover the aftermath that John Cobby faced to spiral into addiction, things that are really difficult to discuss privately, let alone on camera. But they did. They covered all that. But when you finish this documentary and think about what it was about, you will think this was about Anita Cobby. You're not going to think this was about the men who killed her. So again, it is called You Thought You Knew It All. It's an amazing, amazing documentary. Whenever I finish preparing for an episode like this and I'm about to record, I always do a quick news search to see if there's anything that I missed, anything really new that came up. There have been times where appeals were filed between the time I wrote the episode and I recorded it. So I did a Google News search and I found an article from 2019 about John Cobby being hospitalized with a chest infection. And the point of the article was that he had learned after he was released from the hospital, he was being treated in the same hospital as Gary Murphy, who was recovering from the prison attack. John said to the reporters that he would have tried to get to Murphy if he had known. So it's probably for the best that he didn't know. Meanwhile, the Homicide Victim Support Group is in the process of opening Grace's Place, which is named after Anita's mother, Grace Lynch. It will be a 12-bed residential program for children affected by family homicide. They will have one-on-one caregivers, so it can be a home away from home as the children also receive trauma counseling away from the gaze of the media. Over the years, Gary and Grace became very concerned with these homicides where children were in the home because now their home is a crime scene and they must leave it immediately. So they're being taken from their homes in the middle of the night. After experiencing an incredible trauma, it was difficult to get in touch with people to give them a place to stay. They would be taken into care. And these children were losing so much. Gary and Grace realized there was no net there to catch them. So the Homicide Victim Support Group, in Grace's memory 
and in her honor, are building Grace's Place, which would be, as far as I know, the first of its kind in the world. And that will be that net to help these children. As I was on the website for Homicide Victim Support Group and Grace's Place, I noticed they both have shiny donate buttons, and I clicked on both of them, and I hope you will do the same. I'll leave links to the donation pages for both groups in the show notes, because the legacy of Anita Cobby and that of her parents, Gary and Grace Lynch, lives on, and there is a tangible way we can help. <laughs> 